You're listening to the Speaking Tongues podcast. I'm your host, El Sharice. Each week, I sit down to a conversation with multilinguals where we discuss and celebrate language, life, and culture through our own perspectives. Episode 49, speaking North American French and Spanish. Hello, language lovers. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Speaking Tongues, the podcast in conversation with multilinguals. This week's conversation with Marissa centers on North American French and North American Spanish. Marissa is a multilingual content creator and a champion for all language learners. In this episode, we focused on dialects of French and Spanish spoken and often marginalized in North America. We were both eager to shift the French discussion away from Europe and talk about our French-speaking neighbors here in our own country and on our own continent. Marissa speaks about the Acadians and Cajun French and how the language was distributed from Canada all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. We discuss stereotypes that affect French speakers in North America, and how misrepresentations of Parisian French in the U.S. have been harmful to North American Francophones. She also talks to us about how learning to speak the dialect of Spanish that her neighbors and clients speak has opened doors for her and enabled her to make connections in her community. And... Because Marissa has been working on relearning her heritage language of Polish, she even gives us a little bit of insight into how that personal and emotional journey has been coming along. This episode is so full of facts and so full of data and even a mini quiz for us, where I find out a surprising fact about Cajun French that I never even realized. Big thank you to Marissa for this fact-filled conversation and for sharing all of your knowledge with us. As always, if you enjoy this episode, Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the Speaking Tongues podcast on Apple Podcasts so that other language lovers like ourselves can find the show. Okay, let's chat. I am here today with Marissa. Marissa, how are you today? I am so excited to be here. I love this podcast. I love the stories, um, and I'm excited to be part of it. I'm really excited to have you here today, and um, I'm so happy to that we have this chance to speak finally um, on the show, and this has been a long time coming. So um, let's just dive in. I like to start each episode with the same question, and that is, "What is your first language, and how many languages do you speak?" Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> um, I often tell people my first language is Polish because that's true. Uh, when I first started speaking as a little baby and toddler, I spoke Polish. Um, But growing up in the U.S., my dominant language is by far English. Mm -hmm. So either one of those, depending on the time of day, could be my native language. Um, On top of those, on top of English, let's say on top of English, I speak Spanish and French. I'm in love with Portuguese and Catalan, and I carry a conversation on both. Uh, And I'm now relearning Polish as an adult. So I'm relearning my own native language. Exciting. Yeah, a lot going on. Yes. <laughs> yes, but it's so fun. It's so fun. I, I wasn't the plan, but now I can't stop. Yeah. So you grew up speaking Polish in your home. Did your family speak Polish? Uh, was it the only language you heard spoken in your home? Oh, um, it, when I was younger, my both my parents uh, are Polish immigrants. So when I was younger, we mostly spoke Polish. 
eventually English trickled in and my mom later remarried. My stepdad is Pakistani, so there's also Urdu in my house. Um, unfortunately, nobody ever taught it to me. They didn't see it as a priority in the US, neither did my, my biological parents were Polish. So the three languages in our house were Polish, English, and Urdu. That's exciting. Yeah, it's it's a it's a fun mix. It's a very fun culinary mix too. Yeah, <laughs> but it's a it's a fun cultural mix. Oh my gosh, I can imagine the dumplings in your house. Yes, just imagine this is this is like the the cultural identity of the house I grew up in was my stepdad you know, going to make food for us. My mom was at her second job. He's, you know, watching us. This is before they got married. Um, there's pierogies in the freezer. He didn't know what to do with them. Um, and his, you know, Southern Asian instincts kicked in and were like, fry them in hot sauce. <laughs> so that was, it was, a, it was a lot of fun. There was a lot of um, fusing of, of everything. That sounds delicious. Um, and it was never boring. Yes, it, and that's my still my preferred way to eat pierogies is with some, some hot sauce with some curry or something. Um, and I can definitely feel some Slavic ancestors turning in their graves, but it's mm -hmm. really good. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me when you started to, um, and we'll talk about Polish in, we'll talk about Polish later, but when you were in school, when you started going to school, wow. what was your language learning experience like? What languages were you exposed to or what were maybe compulsory languages or, or optional languages that you had to learn in school? Yeah, so growing up in the US, the this was in the 90s, early 2000s, the two languages that were offered in almost all of the public schools that I, that I know of were French and Spanish. Um, so when I was in fifth grade, I think we got to choose and I wanted to do both. They would only let me do one. And so I picked Spanish because, you know, I, I growing up had a lot of Latina neighbors and wanted to be able to use the language. And I was already at that time around 10 years old, bilingual in English and Polish. And I thought, oh, I'll do a third. Um, turns out <laughs> so it ended up being a really awful experience. Um, it is not, I'm not the sort of person that does well in any classroom. Um, the mm -hmm. Spanish classrooms were even worse. Didn't get it, didn't understand the tables, didn't understand, like it didn't, it didn't feel like I could use it even after years and I just crashed and burned. So yeah. when I got to university, I thought oh, I'll study, I'll study Polish. Like this will be different. Spanish just wasn't for me. At that point I had already, you know, forgotten most of my Polish um, and same thing. I just crashed and burned. And then I was like, oh, oh, okay, it's me. I'm bad at languages. <laughs> and so I went about quite a while, uh, the next, you know, 10 years or so, not, no, five years or so, um, thinking that I was just bad at languages and I definitely could never learn one. And I was just going to be a monolingual adult, even though I was almost a, a bilingual kid. Mm -hmm. So yeah. what was it that I guess, like what, what turned the tide for you when you felt like, you went from, you know, it's me, this is my problem to, okay, I can do this. Yeah. So I, when I was 27, so a handful of years after um, bombing out of Polish university, I had some pretty traumatic life stuff happen all at once within the span of like two months. Um, long stories, I kind of was faced with a choice. I could either get a new apartment and, and really struggle to put down the apartment payment um, for the, the city that I was living in, uh, or I could just pack up my stuff, sell a bunch of it and start traveling for a lot less money. And so I did that. 
And in that moment, I was like, do you know what? This is dumb. Like, I'm not, if I, if I don't, I don't have anywhere to live now. Like if I just put all my force into it, like I'm pretty smart. Like if I put all my force into it in, you know, four or five years, I'll learn Spanish. Like I can just move to Mexico. Like I don't live anywhere now. Like I will just full-time learn Spanish and in four or five years, I will have a conversation and I'll just be patient. Um, and of course it took me about three months of living in Mexico to have a conversation. Oh gosh. So, yeah, so was, then it was like, oh, okay. <laughs> oh, this is, this is actually fun. I like doing this. I'm going to keep doing this. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was, it was a quite a, quite a qu quick transition. Yeah. So when you moved to Mexico, what methods were you using to help you to learn the Spanish? Oh, the most expensive ones. Okay. <laughs> I went to immersion school full time. Okay. Um, the cost of living in Mexico was so much cheaper than where I live in the U.S. I suddenly had mm, enough money. I was working um, remotely, and I, instead of paying these absurd gentrified apartment rents, I could go full time to immersion school. So, I would go to my it was like five hours a day of immersion school and then I'd go home and I would use a workbook on Kindle and I would use an audio course and I would watch Netflix and I would, you know, constantly be leaving my house and trying my best to talk to somebody. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was really quick. It was probably, you know, by the time I could have a, an okay semi-communicating conversation, it was three months of studying I swear, probably nine, 10 hours a day wow. in immersion. So <laughs> it was expensive. It was hard. Um, but I'm glad I did it in retrospect because it, it really broke that myth for me that I'm just, I can't do languages, you know? Yeah. What was that immersion experience like? Oh, it was the first day I'd come out of, like I said, a really traumatic moment in my life. Um, and the first day going to Mexico, I had, oh my, I had played with Duolingo for like a week or two on my phone before going to Mexico. I was like, okay, cool. I know food. I know like transport. This is going to be fine. Got to Mexico. Of course, nobody can understand me. I can't understand them. Um, I was overly tired. I was dehydrated. And by the time I got to the apartment I was renting, I was just I was sobbing, <laughs> just alone, sobbing, just like, hey, there's no way I'm going to survive this. Mm. Um, and I would say much of the first two months was like that. Um, it was a lot of just me being like, no, I just have to be patient. And like, this is fine. You know, I've been through worse. Like, I can do this. Um, but I'm forever, forever indebted to all of the super patient Mexicans, whether they were baristas or waitresses or just somebody in the street or the teachers or friends I made um, who made it so much better for me even before I could communicate. So it was, it was really emotional, it was really hard. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, by, by the end of it, it was, you know, I lived in Mexico for quite a while and by the end, it was just totally home and I loved it. Uh, and the only reason I left was COVID, uh, but hopefully I'll be back soon. Okay. I hope you'll be back soon too. <laughs> fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. We'll see. Yeah. Um, so was that the first, so you also mentioned that you, you learned French. What was your experience like with the French language? So I, so where I'm from in the U.S., it's a region called New England and we're neighbors with Quebec. And a few months into learning Spanish, I got the book. It's like, I'm just going to learn another language, <laughs> total bug. And I'd gotten it fluent in Spanish. I think it took me about five months to get fluent in Spanish. Um, and with a lot of problems, right? With a lot of grammatical problems and, you know, missing a lot of vocab, but I hit that plateau and I was really frustrated. And I was like, yeah, sure, I'll go to Quebec. Um, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> Who cares? I don't live anywhere. 
So I, uh, I took it back and I did the same thing. I just, again, this is definitely the most expensive way and not always the best, but I didn't, I didn't have those metacognitive tools yet. Right. So I went to Quebec, signed up for a class and just started studying eight, nine hours a day between immersion school and by myself, uh, worked very hard to communicate with anybody, make friends and, just also <laughs> did a lot of crying at first. I was like, this is harder than Spanish, but, but, uh, eventually, eventually got there. Uh, and now they're the two languages or like the two second languages that I'm most comfortable speaking. Okay. When you went to Quebec and you decided that you wanted to learn French, were you specific about learning French or learning Quebecois? So, Nobody told me that there was a difference. <laughs> I, you know, I feel like as English speakers, we have so much media that we're exposed to from each other that I, you know, traveling through Wales and England never felt like I had a problem understanding anybody. And I think that's largely because of mass Anglo media, right? Mm -hmm. And so I assumed that, you know, how different could these languages be? Maybe I'll have a little accent, but like, whatever, like, it's cool. And as I got farther and farther into French, I realized that like, oh no, I really, I really like Quebecois French. Like I, this is, this is it for me. Mm -hmm. uh, I was never a person that was attracted to France or Paris. I wanted to learn the language of my neighbors in four hours I can be in the Quebec border. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to speak their language, just like I want to be able to speak in my, my own city where I'm from with Puerto Rican or Dominican neighbors, with Mexican neighbors. Like I, I just want to have that closeness. Yeah. But I just, I, for me, there's something magical about the variety of, of North American Frenches mm -hmm. um, and the, the Quebecois French is definitely where, where I feel most at home. What is it about Quebecois? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I think that we have, we're pretty saturated with media, I think, from France as, as Westerners. And it never seemed new or magical to me. It was just like, yeah, and then there's France, it's near England, it's, it's there, right? Mm -hmm. um, but finding out that there was this very unique sounding dialect so close to where I live and that you know, I have these neighbors that speak this totally unique version of a very old language, if we're talking on the scale of, of North America, right? Mm -hmm. Who have totally different foods than are what in France than are than are found in France, totally different literature, totally different history, totally different culture. I mean, it's a totally different world. It felt to me by learning this specific dialect I was opening up myself to new experiences that I absolutely would not have had if I had focused more on a metropolitan Parisian French and there's definitely right. you know uh let's say little tidbits of that Parisian French in my in my French because that there is so much media there is so much music there are so many films there are so many books but it just felt like, okay, that's France. And like this, this is new. This is different. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, it was just exciting. Yeah. I think, I think what you're saying is really interesting to me because, well, for two reasons, one is like the first time I went to Montreal a couple mm -hmm. years ago, like I, I went to Montreal because I couldn't afford a ticket to Paris at the time. Yeah. And I didn't have, well, 
yeah, I didn't really have a lot of time. No, no, no. I'm lying because I had, <laughs> I've, I've taken times out of my life and I've gone to Paris for the weekend from New York. Sure. Um, so it wasn't an issue of time. It was an issue of money. So, and I wanted to try something new. So I said, you know, mm-hmm. I don't want to go that far. Let me hop up to Montreal. Mm-hmm. They speak French. I'll give my French a whirl mm-hmm. in Montreal. And my ignorance is that I didn't realize how different the French was and how different it sounded. Yeah, I don't, it's interesting because you say ignorance. I think I don't think it's an individual ignorance. I really think it's that the the variety of Frenches in the U.S. and Canada, because there are some in the U.S., mm-hmm. have really been suppressed. Really, really right. been suppressed. Right, and I think that is ignorance because, well, for me. Um, mm. Because you're saying North American French is, and I'm yeah. like, well, where, where are we going? Here? Yeah. Because I don't, <laughs> you know, now that I know about Quebecois, yeah. um, <clears throat> and I know that, you know, what it, I know that it's different. What are the other ones? What am I missing? Oh, <laughs> yeah. So the the history, let's give everybody a quick history lesson. It's because it's so cool. Um, the history is that. Before, before English speakers ended up with permanent settlements in North America, there was already one French one. It was called uh, Acadia, or, or in, in French, Acadie. And it was huge, stretched from up in the Fundy Bay in Canada. So we're talking very high northeastern Canada to New Jersey. So it was quite large. Yeah. Um, and in, in that very at one point very very large colony there it kind of split up they had a variety of of smaller frenches that you could call like acadian frenches canadian frenches now generally are sometimes referred to as a a quebecois french although there's many frenches up in that area Mm -hmm. um those french migrants have also spread out west over the past 400 years some of them have ended up in other canadian provinces so to say Quebecois French, that's not the only French spoken in Canada, although it is the variety with the largest concentration and by far the largest population. So okay. in Canada, you have the Acadian French, Quebecois French. Um, the French Ontarians have my favorite accent of all of them. <laughs> um, so you have that variety up there. But then also where that originally very sparse spread out colony was uh, in New England, there are still little pockets of, of francophones in New England. So if you're not familiar with the U.S., that's the everything kind of north of New York on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. But Nouvelle France, if you anybody remembers their history books, actually <laughs> reached all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. Huh. And so there, is other, there are other populations down there, um, especially in Louisiana. You have the, who still speak French, you have what people... Let's Cajuns are normally the the most thought of people, but actually the Cajuns uh, were originally the Acadians. There's forced migration involved. There is some voluntary migration, so there are Acadian uh, descendants in Louisiana, mm-hmm. and then there's also Cre- the Creole down there. Creole being a little bit different than what we might think of it as, like Jamaican Creole, which is you know an accent. I'm oh, sorry, I am a language mm-hmm. and uh, culture. Um, in this case, Louisiana Creole people are the descendants of the original French settlers in Louisiana, um, as well as kidnapped Africans who then became 
Francophones who are still down there with their own third culture. So even in just Louisiana, there's there's three different French varieties. Mm. Uh, and in that whole stretch between Louisiana and Quebec, there are still, although very, very few, still very tiny pockets of Francophones. So they're they're hidden, but they're they're here and it was the most one of the most magical language discoveries to be like oh i can speak to people where i'm from in this other in their language like that's that's the best that is news to me marissa yes <laughs> so I it's mean, so cool i'd heard of the cajun acadian mm -hmm. connection mm -hmm. but it's interesting because well i got to stop saying it's interesting but i think <laughs> i think that um I didn't know that Cajun people, mm -hmm. well, let me think of how I want to say this. Yeah, it's, um, it's complicated. Yeah, like I just, I don't, I, I don't know anything about Cajun culture other than like the stereotypes okay. of, you know, Cajun cuisine and the Cajun accent. Mm -hmm. So I guess I wasn't entirely sure if Cajun people like still speak French um, regularly. Mm. Like, I don't, I don't know yeah. how to say it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not all of them. Um, and you know, this could be <laughs> a, body, a whole, not even a whole podcast episode, but a whole podcast in and of itself, is that uh, the Cajun people in Louisiana, many of them do still speak French um, because of a lot of violence on the federal and state levels. A lot of them no longer speak French. It died with grandparents or great-grandparents in their mm -hmm. family. Mm -hmm. um, there are efforts to revitalize it, and they're beautiful efforts. But a Cajun person, just because they've they've the, the the chain of language transmission has been broken, doesn't make them not Cajun anymore. Mm -hmm. They still have. They come from a, a very specific culture. They, in many cases, can trace their genealogy back to 400 years. It's really incredible. Mm -hmm. um, specific foods, different music, even if they don't speak French, maybe the music they listen to, which is their family's music, is in French. Um, and they're also the, out of the different populations in Louisiana who speak French, they're one of the more distinct ones um, and historically come from a very specific type of poverty. So um they're a reflection of all those things but but this is why like imagine me if i just spoke parisian french which is nothing wrong with that's somebody's favorite thing like cool mm -hmm. but if i spoke parisian french i don't know if i would have access to stuff like this when i went down right. to New louisiana i you know there i feel like there is a tension between like le bon français and which you know i say ironically and and <laughs> a local français which is <laughs> local french which is you know, there's there's a lot of stereotypes about the different French spoken in in North America, um, and they're really brutal. Yeah, I think that's what I'm thinking as you're talking. Also, because I mean, we know, especially here in the United States, that there's not really a lot of encouragement for people to be yeah. themselves and hold okay. on to their yeah. identities and their culture. So I guess that's why I kind of thought like, okay, maybe this Cajun culture is is not like a, I don't want to say inactive, but maybe that mm -hmm. it's, you know, people maybe have uh, over generations, um, you know, lost that kind of connection 
to their heritage I really just wasn't sure and yeah. I'm thinking about like I've only been to New Orleans I haven't been mm -hmm. to any other part of Louisiana mm -hmm. and I remember being there and thinking like okay first of all New Orleans is like one of the most magical places in the U.S. like yeah. it's just so you just feel like you're in this like melting pot of so many different cultures and so many like so much history yeah. and um I really took it as, you know, when I would see something that was Cajun or said Cajun, I really thought mm -hmm. it was like a, uh, I hate to say this, but I felt like it was maybe like a, a gimmick. Yes, you know, like that's what of, it feels like if yeah. you're not from there. And I think that this is, this is the at the heart of this just absolute terrible, terrible American history that we're talking about here, right? I'm, I'm sitting here like, no, the French is here are magic. They're so unique. They have their own vocabulary. They have these ties to indigenous languages. Like they're really cool. But the fact of it is that there was a concerted, and I mean like militarized effort in North America and both Canada and the US to kill French speakers historically or at the very least get them to start speaking English. And so with that history, then if you've been to Louisiana, you see this like, these like Cajun fast food chains, like they, I really, capitalism worked so hard to destroy that culture. And now we, the same economic system works to benefit from that culture, right. which in many cases, the, the actual users don't benefit from it. Right. It's really, really harsh. And, and again, like that's one of the reasons I've I've been drawn to these these dialects of French is it's just I, I want to be part in my own little way as a as a <laughs> foreigner in this example in my own in my own country where I'm from, and as a foreigner, right? I still want to be part of the the effort to to protect the language and to advocate for it and to to advocate for its users. Yeah, is because the the history is just is terrible but the culture is just like you said magical it is magical and it's so rich and i'm i'm glad that you told this story because once again i had no idea <laughs> so mm. um i'm always happy to learn i'm always happy to be in a position to learn and and get to understand yeah. i want to i'm going to see if i can find some more information on 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 this French spoken in the U.S. because I had no idea. I was going to say actually before mm. when you were talking about other dialects of French and this kind of concentration that so many of us have on Parisian French specifically. Yeah. Um, I think that it's it's helpful for us to start opening the lens to other mm. Francophone speakers around the world and other um, uh, Creoles and dialects of French because. Mm. I admit, I'm very much, you know, I love Paris. Mm. I think Paris is like my happy place. Mm. I love getting the opportunity to go there, but yeah. I do realize that um, that's just such a small, 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 teeny, teeny, tiny um, way of life that is often misrepresented, I think, to us as Americans. And I think to anyone actually outside of France or outside of Paris. Um, probably in the same way that New York City can be or Los Angeles yes. can be, or, or Tokyo or whatever, like any any city really, you know? So I should know better as a New Yorker. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, anybody who, who lives in the New York area, you see New York in a movie, you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> right, exactly. Like Sixth Avenue doesn't run that way. Like we know, you know, yeah. kind of things. But um, 
I remember I was going to tell a story is that there's, I would go get my hair done sometimes and the women in the salon, I think they were from Ivory coast Mm -hmm. and I would be able to pick up maybe, I don't know, every six words that they would say, but like, I was able to recognize that like, okay, they're speaking French, but it's not what I'm used to hearing or it's not what I've heard before. And it may be mixed with a local language that they all, you know, can speak together that I'm just not aware of. Um, And I think to myself, I guess, similarly to how you feel about Quebecois, I mean, not to the same level, but like, if I had experience speaking another dialect of French that wasn't just like, you know, the academic stuff I learned in school, and what I've learned, you know, walking around in Paris, um, maybe I'd be able to communicate better with these women. What has your experience been like um, navigating those dialects? Like, oh, wow. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh. Ooh. So I am so lucky. Um, you know, I know we met each other in the online language community and in the spaces that I'm normally in, which is largely Instagram. I think that there's a lot of excitement and acceptance um, and diversity. Like, I, I feel really lucky for that but it's really been a kind of a two-edged sword. So when I speak French, I do not sound like I'm from France, like do not in any stretch of the imagination. And that's not really my goal. Um, But often when I speak to people who aren't from Canada in French, if if they're Francophones, they'll think I'm Canadian. They'll think I'm Quebecois. The Canadians aren't fools. (laughs) The Canadians know I'm from the U S but the, everybody else will think of Quebecois. And so, you know, on one side, all this great stuff we're talking about, uh, in a semi-recent trip to New Orleans a few months before the pandemic started, I walked in, I found, oh my goodness, I found a Francophone bookshop, like Ooh. right in the tourist area. I was so shocked that this thing had survived Acadian books. It's, it's in heart. It's totally recommended. Go to New Orleans, go to Acadian books. It was great. And so I go in. And it's just, of course, like cute little dusty cram full of books, <laughs> like magic shop. Um, and I look at the guy is the only, the owner's there, right? It's me and the owner. I look in, I was like, ah, ça va? He was like, ah, ça va? And like instant, like conversation, cool. Like, hey, you know, I'm looking for these books, da, da, da. And he just totally opened up. He's like, oh, where are you from? Ba, da, da. And he was like, I told him. He's like, oh, I thought you were Canadian. I was like, nope. Um, but he was like, yeah, usually once and he also he's he was occasion i believe um and he made a comment he's like yeah you know we don't i was like oh i'm sure you track a lot of francophone tourists he's like not the french the french will just leave and he had the story where you know basically the french wouldn't think he was a francophone because of his his really unique accent and he often you know was a little about about those interactions and i think you know it was it was it was was mixed Mm -hmm. um but that was one of two francophone discussions i was but conversations i was able to have in louisiana the other was just a uh, waitress and she mentioned she spoke french and was kind of shy about it and so i started speaking to her in french and um she told me a lot more more outright than the the really sweet bookkeeper did was like i don't want to speak to to the french they're so rude about my accent they made fun of me but um and i was I I was left the impression that the reason that she eventually did open up and we did start speaking French and about where she's from, where her family's from, um, was because of my accent. So mm-hmm. I do think that there are just really amazing benefits to having the 
the like less dominant accents and less dominant um, dialects that you speak as a second language. But mm-hmm. at the same time, you know, I've been in, in language exchanges and, and non-Francophones have made extremely, like language learners have made extremely rude comments about, well, why would you learn Canadian accent? Like one woman asked me if I'd ever actually tried to learn the correct accent before. Wow. <laughs> I was like, excuse me? Um, and, you know, there's just constantly terrible Quebecois memes um, online by Francophones. And so it's really, I think it depends on what your, your, goals are with the language Mm. I think it depends on who you want to speak it to and why you want to speak it um but these these non-preferred dialects are unfortunately really politicized um which but but again also if you're learning it for a certain reason there could be really magical advantages in that yeah you know I, I would think I'm trying to think of like if you have business in in uh, French Canadian speaking region of Canada, mm-hmm. it would make sense to learn that um, that dialect. Yeah. But if you don't, I think it can be hard for people to understand like why you would want to do that. And like that's that. I mean, I think that's just like the tip of a really large problem is that yeah. we just we're we're still enamored, in love with, infatuated with all things European French. Um, and it's, it's not just exclusive to French. I mean, uh, the building we're living in now back in the US uh, is largely Puerto Rican Dominican. Um, mm-hmm. And somehow they often not speak Spanish. Now we all speak Spanish, it's all chill. Uh, but there's <laughs> actually a scandal. There's actually one Spaniard in the building. Um, he, I've only run into him once or twice, um, but I, at some point overheard him in the lobby making a comment to a friend as he was living with a friend from the building about how, you know, I don't, I don't speak with them. They don't speak Spanish correctly. Them presumably being Americans from, from the U S from Puerto Rico, mm-hmm. uh, who aren't speaking a specific dialect of Spanish. That's not their dialect. It was just like, in that moment, I was like, what in the world? what in the world? Like, that is how we speak here. That is correct. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think it's just, you know, I I wouldn't even say it's a European thing. We have that same chauvinism in the U.S. about certain accents or certain dialects of the various American Englishes. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just, it's just, it's terrible. I think there's, there's so much lost when we really only try to promote one variation of a language. Right, right. And I think, you know, it's maybe just an old, an old standard, you know, like the food pyramid, you know, (laughs) it's, it's outdated and we all see it all the time and it's there, but is anyone really saying like, why are we still adhering to this 60 year old guideline? Um, Right. It's, and it's not, I mean, you just lose the art of being able to play with languages too, outside mm -hmm. of losing all this amazing history. Like, you know, there are some phrases or words or idioms or expressions or whatever in various dialects that just convey a certain richness that others might not. Like, why would you want to say no to that? That's Mm -hmm. why limit yourself like that. It just seems like a total loss. Yeah. And I also notice that sometimes when people speak like, um, a language that is has been uh, persecuted against or mm. the people have been maligned or uh, mm. you know 
sometimes there is a lack of confidence yeah. in that language as well. So I think, and I, I think about, I'm just saying this in the, in the way of like, I guess people who speak like in the Caribbean being told that the way English is spoken is improper. It's not proper, it's not proper. So then people start to think like, okay, this isn't really a language because they're telling me that, you know, what I'm saying is not a real language, it's not proper. So then they start feeling like, not everybody, but some people start feeling like, you know, you have to speak this way or else you're irrelevant. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's a, it's a really deep topic. It goes, it goes down a long way, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I've, I've, I, one of the, one of the recent phrases or his names that I've heard uh, about applied to this phenomenon is called language scarcity. I've run into this in like one French podcast. I'm not even sure the idea exists in English, but I'll translate it anyway to language scarcity, um, which is the idea that you can, despite, you know, you and, um, you know, one other person speaking the same language, but just speaking two variations of it, maybe different dialects, different accents, whatever. If society deems one of your variations of the same language more important than the others, the other person has a language scarcity. They don't have access to the same, uh, let's say higher education because they can't uh, do a test as well because the test is written in the standard language. They can't uh, get a loan as well because they're deemed uneducated because they, they speak as uneducated variant um, of, the, of the language. They will have a harder time getting a job because their variant is again seen as uneducated or, or anything else terrible and it, it creates like an economic scarcity for them but a, a linguistic scarcity mm -hmm. but they, they can't quite get what they need with what they have and it's it's a really terrible tool um, and you know again one of the many reasons I was like no like I want to study Mexican Spanish I'm gonna you know study Puerto Rican Spanish like ask my Dominican neighbors for some cool words well how do you say straw <laughs> always ask me whenever they say straw because I don't want to to add to that linguistic scarcity I'd, I'd love to learn a bunch of the different dialects that are spoken here and and make sure that I fight against that sort of chauvinism um, I want to go back to Spanish for a second. You talk about Mexican Spanish and Puerto Rican, Dominican Spanish. Um, how has learning those Spanish dialects specifically, how have they helped you? How have they, how have you noticed that they've helped you in a way that maybe if you spoke a different Spanish uh, dialect, um, you wouldn't have had the same path? Yeah, I think it's, in a lot of cases, a question of thinking independently from what uh, you, an academic program might prescribe or what schools in general might prescribe is in, in New England, there are a lot, lot, lot of uh, Dominican and Puerto Rican immigrants. Um, nobody's really from Spain, <laughs> and yet they tend to teach us European Spanish. Why? Nobody, nobody seems to know. So that question of, okay, well, who would I want to speak to who's here? I looked at all of the U.S., not just my, my region, and we have, uh, the U.S. is a Spanish-speaking country. It has the, I believe, largest population, or second largest population after Mexico. We have the second largest population of Spanish speakers in the world. Mm -hmm. um, many, many of them um, have roots in Mexico. So I wanted to do that. Um, but where, where I am, there's a lot more Dominicans and Boricuas, so I wanted to mix that in. 
And I think that, you know, I already mentioned the story of, of one of my neighbors who's from Spain and has this really terrible attitude. I think there would be hesitation if I spoke a certain way to speak with me because of bad previous experiences uh, Spanish language users in my area have had. Mm. I can't confirm that like I can with, with French, um, but I do know that there's, it's, it's just, there's like a certain closeness you can get with people when you're not from their minoritized culture you're living near each other but you've you've made a real effort to learn their thing mm -hmm. um you know none of none of the americas spoke spanish originally a lot of uh Boricua especially have indigenous roots so spanish isn't really their language sometimes um mm -hmm. some people might feel like that but to still have made an effort to do something locally versus just like oh i just speak spanish in general um i think that it, it speaks to the heart a lot more right so. right and it's helped you it's helped you not just in your life but in your career too oh absolutely yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh absolutely yes so so i have for a long long time worked in the events industry um in the various marketing ways and a lot of the a lot of increasing number of events in the past you know 10 years of me doing that have been foreign by uh, latinx clients so it's been amazing to be one of the only agencies in my whole region um, where we can help Latinx clients, but also not just linguistically, but also understand what a quinceanera is, understand like the different little parts of what that might mean, understand that, you know, just like just the little details, like, hey, I know you're probably gonna have a DJ. <laughs> um, your DJ, I, I need to be placed, you know, this, this um, activity should be placed farther away from the DJ. Um, and when you do like X thing, like that should go here. Cause you have that experience. You have that very cultural tie that comes along with the language. So mm -hmm. that has been one of the ways my business has been able to grow and grow and grow. Obviously um, we're shut down right now because of the plague. Uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I was thankfully able to, to fill the plague filled year uh, with a lot of other awesome language stuff too. And uh, a lot of good things coming in the future, I feel like, because I specifically speak uh, Spanish and I live in the U.S. Everything we're talking about, I'm thinking, you know, we, we don't often think about, we don't often think about the languages spoken in the Americas. And I guess I would um, define that as the colonial languages spoken in the Americas. Mm -hmm. But I think that, um, you know, we don't often think about languages that people want to learn second languages languages that people speak first in their homes mm -hmm. whether they are um, immigrants to the u.s or you know first second third generation um living here in the u.s um but we don't often think about them i think um you know related like you know as it relates to english i guess and like english and you know like the u.s doesn't have an official language so yeah. we should be thinking more about these as they are um but you mentioned to me um or you mentioned that there is something very unique about speaking a language in a space where it is minoritized um what are some of your thoughts about that and i guess what are some of the unique points that you've noticed yeah I think that there, I think it very much depends on what your goal is with that language. So first of all, I think that I have an exceptional privilege in that 
I'm a, not only a native English speaker, I'm a white a native English speaker who speaks of extremely standard American English, extremely standard. And so when I want to go and, you know, hop over to Canada and speak French um, in Quebec, it's not minoritized, but there's still this like, you learned our language, like you learned our dialect, you learned our thing. Um, and it's the same thing in Mexico, you know, there are big communities of, of North Americans living in Mexico and they really never make an, I'm over, I'm generalizing, but I don't care. <laughs> they really tend not to make an effort to learn Spanish. Mm -hmm. um, and then when I do, and I, I come with my little Mexican Spanish and like all sorts of like, you know, local words, everybody has this moment of like, you're, you know, again, Spanish is absolutely not minoritized in Mexico, but coming from this place of privilege, like you chose our language and our way, like, wow, like you speak it so well, no matter how poorly I might've spoken it in the past. I think that I'm coming to it with this, this place of privilege, but it's, it's, it's just a really amazing interpersonal experience. And I think that, you know, in other, in other scenarios, you wouldn't be able to make connections, like very personal connections as quickly. And, and that's my goal with learning a language is to meet people, to get to know their culture, to help them along the way. And when you're speaking something like uh, Puerto Rican Spanish in New England, mm. I think that those doors open up 5,000 times faster versus if I was speaking in academic or Spaniard Spanish, which would put some distance between us. Yeah. Um, and, and, that's, and that's my goal. If your goal is to meet people, okay, so then, so then who, what are, how, who are those people and how can you help them and what does their language sound like and what, how, could, how could your language learning journey be part of that goal mm -hmm. right yeah it reminds me of what someone said very early on in this show about like like learning a language it's really important to understand why you're learning a language and yeah. that's something I mean it sounds so basic and like obvious to say but I think that for me it was really helped me shift my mind because mm -hmm. I'm not one of those people that's like, I just want to learn the languages just because I want to learn them. Like I need to have a connection to it. I need to be able to know um, that I'm going to be able to communicate with the people that I want to communicate with yeah. um, through this language. So I feel like I'm, I'm really happy that you're sharing this story because you're, you're embodying that um, idea. I think that principle of like, you're very clear on your why. Yeah. Um, it's not just to say, I want to speak French, I want to speak Spanish. It's like, you're very like, <laughs> yeah. you know, exactly, um, you know, the people that you want to talk to and spend time with and advocate for. And I think yeah. that's really important. And I think that's another, another question like you just said, advocate for, you know, if, if, if I want to make a friend, if I want to, you know, go to Louisiana and speak French with people, is my learning Parisian French going to be helpful for them or not so much? Mm -hmm. Like, these are, these are other people's languages, and I want to treat it like I'm in somebody else's house, you know, and I want to yeah. just be so respectful, and, you know, maybe I take my shoes off or don't at the door. Like, that's their rules. Like, you know, can guests go into the, the refrigerator? Like, that's their rules. Like, I want to, I want to follow those rules, and me coming in saying, I actually learned the colonial version because that's what textbooks are in. And now you're going to talk to me in that colonial version. If that's what they want. Okay. Like I can follow their rules 
but why not pay more attention to them and less attention to other people if my goal is to to befriend them and and love their their culture right Mm -hmm. yeah I think that um I wanted to ask you um here in the in the states I can speak for the states and I know that you've you've traveled far throughout you know the Americas North America than I have so I, I don't I really don't feel comfortable saying like the Americas, yeah. but I know you can expound on that. But I feel like in the Americas or in my case, in the U S what I've noticed, um, a lot of us have an adjacency to other languages, but we don't really have a space in the language for ourselves. And I guess what I mean by that, particularly coming from New York city, um, you know, we're all here, we're all mixed yeah. up, we're all together. And I think as far as like Spanish goes, for example, mm. here, we see signs in Spanish, signs on the street. We, we hear the Spanish language radio if we turn it on in our homes or we go into the, you know, into the stores, um, depending on what neighborhood you're in, you're walking down the street and you hear people talking in Spanish. So we have this like, and I think a lot of us in the US do maybe, maybe those of us in big cities more than uh, smaller, smaller cities or smaller areas. Um, But I feel like as close as we can be to that, um, as close as we can be to these languages that we hear, um, we really don't have a space within those communities. Um, So I guess I'm asking you is like, how have you observed things like that? And um i guess with people who are speaking their heritage language and people who are learning other languages people who have living here and they're speaking these languages like how do you how have you viewed their relationship with the language does that make sense Am I yeah sense? yeah 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 <laughs> i see where you're going yeah i get well it's it's hard because we almost don't have the language to talk about this because this is not a conversation that we're used to having in the u.s The U.S. doesn't have an official language. Some states do, some counties do. Um, For example, Miami-Dade County has. Oh, here's a here's let's do some quizzes. Do you know what the three official languages of Miami-Dade County are? I'm gonna say Spanish. Uh huh. Haitian Creole. Uh huh. And. Oh gosh, is it English? Of course, yes. <laughs> yes, you got it. Yes. So the official languages of Miami-Dade County are Spanish, English, and Haitian Creole. Uh, we've already gone over this, but in Louisiana, the state of Louisiana actually has two official languages, uh, which you can probably guess, right? Mm-hmm. Um, okay, you told me this already, and this is by the, this is the first quiz that I'm having in this <laughs> show. I, no. no, no, no. I love it. I love trivia okay, good, good. and quizzes. So the two official languages of the state of Louisiana, mm-hmm. I'm going to say English mm-hmm. and, oh boy, um, is it Cajun? It is. So Cajun's not a language. Cajun's it's a variety of Cajun's French. Cajun's a variety uh, but yes. of French. But is the, it French? The, it's French, yes. It's French. Okay. Yeah. So we have these, these, and there's plenty of other states and municipalities with similar language laws on a local level. But English doesn't have any official status as a federal language. There is no official federal language. It just happens to be 
the language in which federal business in today's days almost always conduct. Not always, but almost always. And so it's weird that we don't have more, we're not more used to having these conversations about language, um, mm. considering how linguistically diverse the U.S. is. But I think that that, you know, I think there's a direct link between you being like, is this making sense? Like, do you understand what I'm saying? And the feelings that heritage language speakers have in the U.S., they don't have official recognition, including in towns, especially by the border. Um, I think the town of Brownsville, Texas, it's over 99% of residents, I believe. I believe it's over 99% of residents who speak Spanish as a first language and, and don't necessarily have, they don't have schooling in Spanish. The public schools are still in English. <laughs> so right. it's, it's a, just a bizarre place to, considering we don't have these conversations, but growing up um, in the town that I did, uh, New England was also a really, really linguistically and ethnically diverse area. And so I grew up adjacent to Urdu, which I mentioned, um, Portuguese, Spanish, even though I couldn't speak it at the time, um, uh, various languages from China and India, ton, mm -hmm. uh, Belarus, ASL, like I, those are just my neighborhood. <laughs> those are basically <laughs> my neighbors, the kids that I grew up with in this one neighborhood, what they would speak with their families. Um, mm -hmm. And, but we would all default to English together and there wasn't really sadly any celebration of it. It wasn't until I became active in doing language stuff that I realized that there was a problem with the fact that that we there wasn't more of a cultural celebration. Um, and that was just, you know, kind of a, a a bubble that we lived in where everybody was multilingual and that was the norm. Mm -hmm. Because I think that people are ashamed of maybe having an accent, you know, our parents' generation having an accent, not being born here, and then my generation speaking as as a child of immigrants, uh, of not being of having accents in our in our heritage language. I have a, I definitely have uh, an American accent when I speak Polish. Um, I know that if you don't speak, <laughs> even experience if you don't speak the language, you know, at at the level a native would expect you to. There's a lot of shame going on, and I think that's one of the many ways that language transmission is broken even though we are living in this this reality where it's actually very common right. to have a heritage language to have parents with an accent to be multilingual like that is especially on the east coast a reality but yet we're all kind of in our own little adjacency bubbles and and is communicating in English and not addressing our own feelings about our own languages very much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I agree and I like that you use the word, well, I, I don't like the word, but I like that you use the word stigma because I think mm -hmm. that um, in my mind, as a person who grew up monolingual yeah. and, you know, I think that this is an outside observation that I make this observation, but I, I'm trying to, do, I'm going to try to do it carefully because I don't mm -hmm. want to offend anyone or make any assumptions, but you know, a hundred years ago, 120 years ago, I still feel like it's 2001 sometimes, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> Oops. <laughs> whoopsies, um, you know, 120 years ago in the beginning, in the beginning of the last century, assimilation was like, 
required in order to succeed. Like you didn't have, a lot of people didn't have a choice. And I think that, you know, five generations, sometimes six generations later, you would think that that attitude would dissipate and that we would feel more like, you know what, I can still, I can still succeed even though, you know, my first language, I was born here, Mm. but I grew up speaking Spanish or I grew up speaking and I, I'm really, I don't know what the word would be, but maybe surprised and a little sad that people have to carry this shame because you know, for someone like me, who's always like, like, I'll give you an example. If I meet someone who, let's say someone I work with Mm. or someone like a neighbor, and I notice that they have an accent, I Mm. have to think twice before I react because my first reaction is like, oh my God, where are you from? Tell me (laughs) everything. Like, can I come over for dinner? Like, I just want to (laughs) know... I want to know and you everything. meet so well, right? Yeah. You're just like, you're so cool. Do you want to be friends? But actually. <laughs> right. And I, it's like, I have to be careful because I yeah. don't want to seem, and I know that the reason is because I know this person probably has, you know, dealt with ignorance and dealt yeah. with people being like, yeah. you don't speak right. Or I don't like the way you talk and, and things like that. And I'm on like Pepe Le Pew, like floating high. <laughs> like, I love the way you talk English. It's so beautiful. Yeah. Um, but I think it's really, it's really interesting when you look at the timeline of it and when people coming to America were expected to fit into America and this mold. And like, none of us fit into that no, now. No. You know, we're all shades of the rainbow, come from all corners of the world. So it, it's like a redefinition of what it means to, to be American, to, to live in this country and to, to be able to succeed and feed your families and fall in love and the same things that we all want. Like, well, it's, it's, it's so interesting that you say this, like, I, I might've gasped here. Like if these people were pressured, you know, generations ago to assimilate, why are they still pressuring other people? Like, didn't, didn't we learn? Well, first, this is a fun fact. Um, the actually, is, this is a terrible fact. <laughs> this is a terrible <laughs> fact. Um, the many, many of the original, the original French English tension in the Americas goes back to actually the series of Anglo-Franco wars. Um, that long, long, whatever it was, like three hundred years of the British and the French just fighting. Mm-hmm. They brought that nonsense over here, and there were massacres of early of early colonists massacring each other mostly the english going after the french but over national differences which often looked um like like linguistic differences and you know now that they've kind of been assimilated it's it's many of their you know great great infinite great uh grandchildren who are doing the same thing and it's it's in my opinion, one of the strategies of white supremacy, the idea that if you're from Europe, you're white, this is our country, we got to help, we got to kick everybody else out, whatever. Well, actually, everybody was infighting very, very recently. We can imagine, you know, 100 years ago, the Irish weren't white, now they're allowed to be, and because they've assimilated. Mm-hmm. When I was born, and my, my father was born, we have stories in our family, of, and I won't get into it because it's not my story to tell. Um, but my dad being physically attacked um, more than a dozen times for speaking Polish when he was younger, um, 
Slavics, uh, Slavs weren't, weren't seen as white and now we are to maintain this, this supremacy. Mm. I don't want to be part of it. That's again, one of the reasons I've been working so hard to learn the other national languages of the Americas is because I, I don't want to be part of that 400 year old history of fighting, forcing somebody to assimilate. And then that person's great, great, great descendants doing the same thing. I want to, mm-hmm. I want to be part of the this breaking that cycle here. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. And I'm glad that you've made that decision to do that. So tell me about your experience learning, relearning Polish. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what has it been like? And what are some of the goals you've made for yourself? Oh, so what's it been like? Well, let's start with the, let's start with the goals. Um, my original, my first goal was to have a conversation with my grandparents in Polish. I'm, I'm so lucky. Um, my paternal grandparents are still alive. So lucky, so lucky, so lucky. And they can get by in English, um, but I there's a big community, there's a huge communication barrier there. Mm. And I always thought, oh, if I spoke Polish, maybe we'd have a better relationship. Maybe we could express stuff to each other more, more earnestly. Uh, and I just took that on um, last summer. Outside of that, my my personal goals for learning Polish are really just to be able to reconnect with my Polishness. Um, I don't want my I don't want to see myself swallowed up into kind of white bread America, um, since that's not where I'm from. I'm from cooking frogies and hot sauce, you know. So <laughs> I want to, I want to reinvest in in myself and my culture and where I'm from. And also be able to, um, you know, encourage others to to do that, uh, mm-hmm. no matter what their culture is. So right. my goal is really, you know, I, I've I've achieved my smaller goal. I've had my conversation with my grandparents. Um, oh, great! Yes, <laughs> yes, it's gonna be on YouTube once I'm eventually done editing the video. <laughs> but but um but you know now it's now it's really about the process and learning about the process and dealing with the emotions. Um, and I'm joking about this YouTube video because I haven't recorded, but it's like, you know, how's, how's learning Polish been? Like, it's been like having a YouTube video set on your, your computer for 14 days and still not having edited it because it's emotional. It's mm. emotional. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I wasn't, you know, I'm like, pl- like, you know, just kind of plopping along through those other languages. Like I'm gonna learn Catalan. <laughs> like let's play with German. Like it's so fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I got to Polish and it's like, I need to find a therapist. <laughs> it's like, oh. it's hard. It's hard. It's hard. Um, and I, I now, I, I understand more than, and it's, it's just unexplainable why somebody would choose not to relearn or learn for the first time their heritage language I now understand why somebody wouldn't want to do it because I think previously there's in my mind there was always like oh why not learn Spanish like Spanish is such an easy language it's so fun now I'm like wow you gotta you gotta really battle some demons if you want to relearn or or learn for the first time your heritage language Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think that that's something that is lost in the beautiful wonderful language communities that people forget that Maybe it was fun for you to learn Portuguese. Maybe it was fun for you to learn Nahuatl, but somebody else is going to have a very different experience. Right. Um, and and I don't know how well language. I don't think at all, honestly, language teachers are equipped uh, to to deal with that by no fault of their own. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't think anybody's really equipped to deal with this sort of stuff. 
Yeah. Wow. I I really think that it's interesting that you're you've tapped into the emotional side of it, and I'm glad that you're not um, ignoring it. Yeah. You know, like making it seem like what I think what I like about what you're saying is that you're not making it seem like oh you know I just did it and it's done, and it's it sucks and it's hard and it's like well obviously, you know. It, if you can learn other languages, you can learn Polish too. So it's not that, but it's yeah. the other stuff, you know? And like you said, like, I think what we forget as, as, and I think I forget this too, and this is something that I really learned last year, is that there is an emotional component when you're stuck learning a language or when you're, when you're having like the ups and downs of a language that's not just because you don't understand the, the subjunctive, you know? Mm -hmm. It's beyond that. And, and you're right. Like language teachers are not therapists. Yeah. So they, you know, not all of them are equipped to kind of deal with that. Um, how have you been learning Polish? Like what, what steps have you been taking to learn the language? I have tackled it. I would say using the skills I've learned with my other languages. One of the questions I've gotten relatively often is okay well if it, why are you why did you wait so long to relearn your heritage language why didn't you do it before French or Spanish or these other languages um and it was because even then I felt like I, I needed to understand language learning I needed to learn how to learn before I tackled something this big and scary like Polish is a little bit harder than other European languages but but not by magnitudes um but I just knowing that I it would be very hard to take on the emotional and intellectual components at the same time. Right. Um, give me pause. And I'd say from an intellectual, you know, grammatical point of view, um, I'm a, I've been a passive bilingual. I can understand spoken Polish. I can follow a conversation, which is how I've mostly spoken with my grandparents is I've listened to them in Polish. They've listened to me in English. It's been fine. Um, so I'm doing a lot of immersion, which I'm, which I'm really liking. A lot of movies, a lot of songs. I've listened to every episode of every intermediate Polish podcast available. <laughs> There's not that many, sadly. Um, it's probably around, I don't know, two, three hundred episodes between all of them. Um, listen to them all. And then I've been doing uh, the things that I like to do. I like to do audio courses. I'm a big um, Michelle Thomas fan. I've done some really fun workbooks. Some are, of course, more fun than others. I'm a flashcard junkie, so a lot of Anki. Um, and yeah, just, just experimenting and finding out how I can leverage being a passive bilingual in a way that I couldn't with the other languages. Mm -hmm. um, but, as, but, but largely also in a way that doesn't feel rushed, that's not this like, you know, putting a new flag in my Instagram bio, polyglot yeah. stuff, like that's not just focused on grammar, that's focused on you know, making sure that I feel good and that I'm not going to want to quit. Because so I would say that my risk of quitting Polish is, is, has been and will be much higher than any other language because of that emotional thing. Right. Where do you, where do you see your studies going? Like, you know, how is it going, first of all? And like, yeah. for the foreseeable future, um, what do you hope to do with it? Yeah, it's it's going, it's going. I, I have, uh, I'd say, so I started five and a half months ago. Um, I can now have 
if the other person is really patient with me, I can have a, a semi-intelligible conversation. It's not a great one, um, but I can have it. And, you know, the, the next thing I'm really looking forward to is being able to read small kids books. Um, I'm sorry, not small kids books, uh, graded readers. Mm. Because when I was a kid, I tried to read really basic kids books in Polish. Um, one of the things heritage language users face is that we're very often, unless it's an incredibly phonetic language like Spanish, mm-hmm. um, and then sometimes too, we're very often illiterate in our heritage languages, even though we can understand it spoken. So I can listen to a whole podcast, get what's going on, no issues, um, but then not read the transcript. So that's the thing I'm, I'm looking forward to most coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, but right now, because of like, you know, because it is such an emotional thing, I was just, after five months, I was just exhausted about how, like how much emotional work and how much grammar and how many flashcards I had to do. So uh, for this month uh, that we're recording in, I'm just going to go back to to French. I'm reading some uh, cool Francophone books um, written by uh, First Nation people in Canada. I'm super excited about that. Cool. I'm reading some Acadian history. Super excited about that. Um, and I'm just giving myself the emotional break to be like, cool, I'm just going to maintain Polish for four to six weeks um and then after that go back because you know the expectations that i think i put on myself were pretty daunting um Mm. and i think i needed an emotional break from that which is which is cool and that'll help me when i do get back to it i think in the next like three four weeks Mm -hmm. um that'll help me get back to a lot faster or not faster but stronger yeah i'm glad you recognize that you needed that time yeah yeah um it's not something that again very many language people talk about mm-hmm. but you can take a break it's not a rush <laughs> it's, they're not, not in competition with anybody i i'm gonna do my thing on my pace mm-hmm. and i don't need to be on a university schedule which is kind of snail's pace i don't need to be on some competitive youtube pace which is not, just not even real life I'm gonna do it on my own pace and and that's cool that's right for me I know what's right for me you know yeah so for those of us who are listening and have picked up on your YouTube channel that you mentioned a few times please let us know where we can find you on YouTube on socials and and follow your progress yeah so um, the YouTube channel is pretty personal um if anybody wants to come see my polish journey it's more based on my own stuff um it's relearn a language um i'm also on instagram as multilingual marissa um but the really fun stuff especially if you're looking into um, my favorite languages spanish french portuguese polish um catalan uh, is relearnalanguage.com i'm trying to build a ton of really cool resources there um, that stuff I, I'm really making with other people in mind, thinking, you know, what could I have used when I was first sitting Catalan? What do I need to exist? What lists will benefit other people? What explanations or compilations will help benefit other people? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, it's been a really, really fun connecting to languages and language learning in that, in that new way exciting yeah you always have such great content marissa thank you (laughs) i really enjoy your content and i'm gonna put your links in the show notes so that other people can enjoy your content as much as i do 
Um, mm. I think that you're always so thoughtful and your content is just so well curated and authentic. And I really appreciate that. Um, I'm so happy that we had this conversation and I know that I have a lot of learning and reading to do. I have a lot to do because I didn't really get my words out the way I wanted to. Um, and I want to find the words to say the things that I want to say. So I hope you'll come back at some point yeah. and maybe we can, uh, take a second, you know, dive into this topic, because I think it's, you know, as you said a, a several times, as you said several times, uh, we don't really talk about this much in the U.S. Um, and I think that it's something that, um, I think it's something we need to talk about. I think it's something that is, is important and hopefully, you know, people do think this topic is important and will go run and do their research for themselves like I'm going to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, that's that's part of why I'm doing this also publicly is I could I really did have a choice of learning Polish and secret and dealing with those shame and those feelings on myself. Or I could, you know, go on to a podcast and be like, yeah, I had to go to therapy. It's cool. Here's some new resources. You should read about this thing. Um, but the question for me is, you know, again, being a person who deeply loves the Spanishes and Frenches of the U.S., who's fallen madly in love uh, with Catalan especially, but also Portuguese, you know, can I help those people? They've, they've given me so much. Re speakers of these languages have created resources and producers have put on amazing shows. You know, can I, can I help them with my own journey? Um, mm. And that's especially the website. Um, but that's really what I try to focus on. I try to, to, help others and the feedback so far even though it's a relatively new project um has been really really remarkable That's so i'm excited fantastic. to keep fantastic yeah and i hope you do and you know I'm, I'm always following the work that you do so thank you so much for all that you do and for having this conversation i'm like so pumped um i like to end each episode with the same question and that is do you have any jokes popular sayings tongue twisters, cool slang words, idioms, words of wisdom or words of advice in French, Polish, Spanish, or Catalan to share. Yes. Um, oh, there's so many great fun words in all of them. Um, but in the spirit of what we've talked about um, with the languages of the Americas, minoritized languages here, um, relearning heritage languages, one of the idioms that has served me very well throughout language learning has been from Catalan and it's poca poc sompla la pica which is like little like drop by drop little by little the sink will fill up oh. uh, and so don't rush your processes don't worry keep going especially if you're a heritage language speaker the the, the just trust trust the process and it'll happen by its own can you teach it to me yep so poca poc poca poc Som, se, it's like, se ompla, sompla, sompla, la pica, la pica. Mm -hmm. Oh, short and sweet, very catchy. I like it. That's how I feel about Catalan. Short, sweet, very catchy. Catalan, did, and we didn't talk about this, which please come <laughs> back because we'll talk about <laughs> Catalan too. But just do a whole episode on Catalan. I can talk about it for ten hours. <laughs> we definitely will have to do that. But I feel like Catalan is like very. Like, I just like this, like how, 
clipped it sounds. Oh, yeah. It's yes, really, like, oh. yeah, it's so cool. I have to, um, yeah, we got to do a Catalan episode. Yeah, it has a, a really beautiful <laughs> galloping rhythm. I love how it sounds. Yeah, so, yeah. that's a good way to say it. Um, Marissa, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Love the podcast. Uh, can't wait to see what you're up to next. Uh, and what this year of the podcast looks like. Yeah, um, it's going to be hopefully a very exciting year. Yay! <laughs> so very quickly, don't think about this too hard, but in this situation, we've been talking for uh, over an hour now. Uh, what would be the best way to say goodbye? Mm. My favorite way to say goodbye, which is my... I think perfect for this um, would just be with a simple chow. I love chow. I think it's understood across so many languages <laughs> and I love that aspect about chow even though you might not have a language in common with somebody a lot of the time they'll understand a good chow. So yeah. chow. Chow Marissa I'll be talking to you soon. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>